This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 1st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. New lawsuits hope to apply state-level nuisance regulation to pollution that crosses not just state, but international borders. The challenges come from cities in California, New York, and Colorado. Cato adjunct scholar Andrew Grossman is skeptical. We spoke this week. What is the best argument that uh, pollution that crosses state lines and, in fact, international borders constitutes a nuisance and a nuisance that can be uh, regulated under state law. So if you look at it superficially, there is a long history of using state nuisance law, uh, which is a form of common law, uh, to address uh, certain types of pollution. Um, For example, uh, I think the typical um, example that people use would be, say, a concrete plant that throws a lot of dust in the air, it blankets the neighborhoods, it blankets the city, and you might use nuisance law uh, to enjoin the factory from doing that and perhaps even to pay damages for the people uh, whose property has been uh, damaged. Um, This, of course, is a little bit different. Um, You're not talking about a single uh, plant. You're not talking about a, a single group of people who are subject to its emissions. Um, And you're not talking about activity that's happening within a well-defined space. Uh, In other words, you're getting well outside of anything that the common law of nuisance had really ever considered. So what have these cities done? I know that uh, there are several lawsuits pending against oil companies in California. There's one in Colorado and there's one in New York City. Colorado is interesting because it's not on a coast, so their claim can't have anything to do with presumably the the rise of of waters uh, at the at the levels of the ocean in a certain sense these are very uh, legally aggressive lawsuits what they claim is that uh, as a matter of state common law of nuisance um, that all of these energy extractive activities that are being undertaken by the major energy companies like Exxon and Royal Dutch Shell um, are responsible for throwing up carbon dioxide into the atmosphere uh, and thereby causing them certain types of damages. For the coastal cities, uh, it typically relates to uh, rising sea levels and things of that nature. Uh, for uh, you know, for the uh, Colorado, uh, for Boulder and Colorado, um, you know, I guess it's uh, foregone tourist activities and other changes to their climate. Uh, New York City probably a mix of the uh, the two. Um, but what they're trying to do is several fold. One, they're trying to curtail the use of these traditional energy technologies. And second, they're trying to obtain billions of dollars in damages uh, for the remediation that they say is going to be necessary. So why not sue the people who buy lots of oil? The people, I mean, oil, oil companies sell oil and presumably they, they put some stuff into the air at some point, but the people who are actually putting stuff into the air seem to be the consumers of that product. Well, that's exactly right. Um, and a couple states tried that before, and that wound up in a Supreme Court case called Connecticut versus AEP. Um, and it was exactly that kind of suit. It was against um, electric utilities that, of course, you know, burn lots of fossil fuels uh, to produce electricity. And the Supreme Court held that those types of emissions, those emissions activities are regulated exclusively by the Clean Air Act and therefore displace 
uh, federal common law. That case also did involve some state common law claims, just like the ones here. Uh, but the plaintiffs, after that Supreme Court judgment, did the reasonable thing and simply abandoned them. They they just uh, voluntarily dismissed them. Uh, but these people are trying to do something a little bit different. They're saying, well, we're not going after the people actually using the fuels. Uh, we're going after the people who are extracting the fuels. Um, you know, it might it might seem to be a, a very legalistic difference, a, you know, a difference without a distinction. Um, and I think in all likelihood that's going to be the way the courts look at it. That um, you know, if if you know a certain activity is pervasively regulated such that common law uh, in that area no longer exists because Congress has already stepped in and said what the law is. Um, you don't get to uh, attack in court a precursor to that activity. Um, you know, for example, if it's legal, uh, you know, if Congress provides that it's legal to do something, uh, you know, investing money uh, to go ahead and do that thing, um, you know, is is equally protected. So, what is the role of uh, municipal bonds here? Well, when these suits were filed, particularly by a number of the uh, municipalities and counties in California, uh, something very interesting came to light. So these legal complaints are all doom and gloom. They talk about how the cities are going to be underwater and it's going to cost them billions of dollars. Uh, and, and really, they make all these very catastrophic uh, projections um, as part you know, of a campaign to, to get some attention um, you know, and, and to raise their, their claim damages up to you know, very large numbers, you know, billions or tens of billions of dollars. But at the same time, when they're not uh, filing these bombastic lawsuits, every municipality on a regular basis uh, is entering the municipal bond market to raise money to pay for their normal operations. Um, in this instance, a number of these municipalities were selling long-term bonds. And you know what don't they identify as a risk factor in these bonds? Climate change. What about sea level rise? They have no idea how much sea level rise there's going to be. Um, do they have flood insurance? They, ex they ex expressly disclose that they do not. Um, and so it, w when you've got, you know, this pervasively regulated uh, securities offering, you know, the securities offerings uh, at issue, um, you know, these cities are, are doing one thing, you know, on their day to day, you know, when they're dealing with their accounting people and the people who, um, you know, are responsible for actually managing the city. When their lawyers get a hold of these things, uh, apparently they're saying something, a, a very different story. So the, the claim then would be that uh, these cities uh, are, are not taking the threat of climate change as seriously as they should? Given given the nature of the litigation, well, I mean that would certainly be one argument to make. But I think the more straightforward argument is that all this bombast that's reflected in their legal complaints is really just a bunch of sensationalism. Um, you know, they don't know exactly what's going to happen. They don't really have a firm reason to believe that uh, anything like the catastrophe that they're projecting is what's going to come down the pike, and certainly not in the time frame that they're uh, talking about in these lawsuits. Um, what they're making here is a play for money and publicity, and it's not something that. That, you know, when push comes to shove and they have to uh, obey certain legal standards for how they put the facts forward, at that point, they're not willing to make those kinds of bombastic claims because they know they would probably get in trouble for it. So uh, let's assume that the courts, for a moment at least, uh, do not treat this as a distinction without a difference relating to either the consumers or the uh, providers of these fuels that put uh, junk into the air. Uh, what what might be the likely impact if the courts t treat this as a separate and uh, more important challenge? Sure. So if you get past this this issue that uh, you know emissions are already regulated and you don't get to attack them uh, based on common law. 
Um, you wind up with actually a, a much more serious legal problem. So what they're seeking here in the main is money, but seeking money is the same as asking somebody to curtail their, their uh, conduct because you're asking them to enforce, uh, you know, and, and hew to a particular duty. And if they don't do that, that's what you get the money for. So it really is an attempt to regulate somebody by charging the money for their conduct. But the problem here is they are suing uh, companies not based on their emissions within a particular municipality or the fuel they've produced within a particular municipality. They're they're suing based on worldwide energy production, which, of course, given that this is a global climate change, uh, really is the only unit at which it would make sense to, to look at this. The problem is, and what makes this from a legal perspective, and I'll, I'm going to use a technical term here, insane, um, what makes this insane is that these uh, lawsuits are attempting to wield state common law, like, for example, the common law of California, against activities that are occurring all over the world. Uh, just to give you an example, um, Royal Dutch Shell, which is named as a defendant in many of these lawsuits, operates a, a large oil field uh, off the coast of Norway uh, in the Arctic Ocean. Um, according to these uh, lawsuits, the state, the law of the state of California regulates what is going on off the coast of Norway, something that is pervasively regulated by Norway. It's subject to European Union regulations. When the, when the uh, fuel is uh, taken and refined, uh, if that's done in Norway or Sweden and it's regulated there, when it's sold, uh, it's sold typically in Scandinavia, so that sale is regulated. Um, when it's used, it's used in applications that are regulated by the European Union and the member states. You know, these are the reasons that we have things like treaties. They're the reasons that we have a Senate and you know that approves treaties. We've got a Congress, um, you know, that crafts law on these things. We've got a president who who negotiates international agreements. If a Cal if a court in California is going to go around telling Norway what to do, well, gosh, um, you know, Norway may not really like that. And what do you do in that instance? It's not apparent to me how this works. Um, how does the court figure out what Norway's regulations are and what Norway is doing about this? Who's going to tell them? I don't know. What if Norway disagrees with whatever it is that the court decides needs to be done in this case? Um, does Norway complain to the court? Do they send an ambassador to, to file a brief or something? I don't know. This has never happened before. And what if Norway decides that they don't like whatever it is the court has decided and they're going to impose, let's say, reciprocal trade tariffs uh, or something like that against the United States on the basis of one of these rulings? Um, does the court hold them in contempt? I mean, these are all the reasons why, uh, you know, it would be a, a very aggressive thing to attempt to apply California law to activities in other states, uh, attempting to apply California law as, you know, the arbiter of, of what's lawful across the entire world. Um, I mean, there is simply not a, a, a even a plausible legal argument for it. Uh, hypotheticals aside, then, where is this going? Well, look, this isn't the first time that uh, activists uh, have, have tried to bring the issue of climate change into the court using these type of common law theories. Um, you've got the AEP versus Connecticut case, which went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rejected it. You've got Comer versus Murphy Oil, which was a tort case brought in Mississippi. You've got K Kivalina versus ExxonMobil, which was actually really quite similar to these current cases. And you've even got California versus General Motors, uh, as, as you can imagine, uh, against automakers for, uh, for their uh, cars emissions. 
The thing that these cases all have in common is that they have all been launched to enormous bombast and press attention, and then they have all bombed out. They have all completely flamed out at the end of the day. And in this instance, you know, those cases were the low-hanging fruit. Those were the more obvious legal theories uh, if you were going to try and bring this kind of case. What we're doing now, these uh, state law nuisance lawsuits, uh, it is even farther afield and they are much more difficult to sustain legal theories. Uh, there's simply no possibility that these cases are going to go anywhere. This is much more about activism. It's about much more – it's much more about smearing energy companies and trying to change the political debate than it is, uh, you know, any sort of um, legitimate and likely to succeed legal argumentation. Andrew Grossman is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 